Squeals of joy, laughter, blaring disco music, and the constant clunking sound of roller skate wheels hitting the floor fill the air in the cavernous hall that makes up the skating rink, located on North Clark Street in Chicago. Flocks of teenage girls stand in small groups to the side, giggling and whispering to each other as the boys with their feathered hair and bell-bottom jeans skate by. This is the scene every weekend night in the legendary Rainbow Roller Rink all throughout the mid-70s. The man that you're about to hear from has a very interesting story about that Chicago landmark that was ultimately torn down. Frankly, he has a lot of interesting stories, and they aren't about skating his teenage years away. No, they're about something and someone much more sinister. See, Marty Zielinski is a professional photographer by trade, and he had a particular customer that we are all familiar with. Marty just so happened to be the creep's personal photographer. But that's not the only work that he did for Gacy. See, the Rainbow Roller Rink needed a full rehab job. And you guessed it, Gacy got the gig. And it was a big job, basically a full gut job and rebuild. Let's see what Marty remembers about that gig so many years ago. Rainbow. Rainbow Roller Rink was just uh, another of the um, jobs, I construction jobs I did for John. Uh, I don't remember at the time the specifics of it other than I was told that it was either a bank being converted into a roller rink or a roller rink being converted into a bank. I didn't exactly recall, but I knew it was one or the other. And I remember one of the other kids I worked with, a kid named Tony, um, it was it was a big deal. It was a large building, probably 40,000 square feet, and John had the entire contract for the whole thing. It was total demolition. And um, I worked there, I think, a couple of days. It was like November or December. It was cold, but not winter, nasty cold. But at any rate, um, while we were tearing all this old construction debris out and getting rid of it rather than put it in a dumpster we were putting it in a niche in the back of the building there was a divot in the brick wall uh back by the alley i'm not sure if it was a stairwell or maybe just a niche for uh garbage cans or something whatever it was i mean there was the wall was not flat along the alley there there was this this little indentation and we were instructed to pile all of this debris into this niche which was probably i don't know eight by twelve feet and we piled it to the ceiling and i go john what are we doing this for you know he's go well dumpsters cost money says john so I guess this was a way of saving money. Then a little while later, one of the brick dudes comes and he's bricking up the wall. So he's making one solid brick wall there with all this construction debris hidden behind it. This area where nobody is going to have any access until they tear the building down, which for all we know could have been 100 years from then. But I guess it was 2003, I'm not sure. At any rate, um, two years later, John is arrested, bodies found in the house, and and I start wondering about the roller rink. You know, you know what what might have been buried underneath all that debris in that building. 
I mean, that would have been the ideal place to hide something, because you know nobody's going to see it for the longest damn time. So I tell the police, I tell every agency of the police that interviewed me, and there were a lot of them. It was state police and God only knows how many different varieties of cop there are. Nobody had any interest in this. Lo and behold, the building gets knocked down in the early 2000s, and I hear a story, I don't even know if it's true, that bodies were found there. Young men, um, and nobody makes the connection. And it bugs me. It's one of the one of the three questions I'd like answered before I die. Were there John Gacy bodies buried at the Rainbow Roller Rink? Maybe I live long enough to find out. I don't know. That Tony that he was talking about, working the gig with him, that was none other than Tony Antonucci, who we heard from last episode. Oddly, this interview with Marty was conducted after our interview with Tony, and he had not mentioned this particular job. Now, Marty thought that the fact that they were disposing of all the refuse in that concave portion of the interior of the building was strange. But at the time, he chalked it up to Gacy just being a cheap bastard, which seemed to be a running theme. They creep through nickels around like manhole covers. But we know better than that, don't we? Remember, the creep was always planning. Nothing was left to chance, and you can bet your ass that the piling up of all that refuse only to have it walled up was much more than just not wanting to pay for dumpsters. We think that it was much darker, much more sinister than that. And so does Marty. So while Marty was not so sure about what happened when the old skating rink was torn down in 2003, we are. The fact is that during the demolition of the building, a construction worker discovered bones and the authorities were immediately contacted. The following week, law enforcement, with the aid of a cadaver-sniffing dog and workers with a backhoe, dug holes. And lo and behold, more bones were discovered. Six bags full of bones, to be exact, in addition to two different sneakers, were recovered from the same area that the first bones were found. At one point, one of the cops held up a long bone with a cloth attached to it before it was placed into an evidence bag. All of the bones that were found were brought to the station and were determined by the medical examiner to be human remains. Marty claims that he told anyone and everyone that was willing to listen that Gacy had done a demo and a rebuild, and he knows because he was there. So, of course, the Chicago police took this incredibly valuable tip and did nothing with it. Nothing. That case, if you want to call it that, remains cold and unsolved. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure seems pretty likely that those bones belong to more Gacy victims. I just don't believe in coincidences, especially not a coincidence like that. So you can be sure that we will be doing everything in our power to locate those bones, and if need be, involve the courts so that we may get a sample to submit for DNA analysis. This will start with a FOIA request to the Chicago Police. While this is certainly a cold case, it is clearly not an active investigation. As a matter of fact, in my research to validate Marty's story about the rink, I had a very difficult time locating information confirming that in fact bones were ever even recovered. Eventually, I did. But this is a story that never had any legs, at least not in the media, which we find very strange. 
Darren strongly believes that this is yet another hush job by the Chicago police and possibly city officials. As we have said on numerous occasions, no one from CPD or the city wants any more bodies attributed to Gacy. But you know what? That's not their decision to make. And also, it's not their job to cherry pick which cases to investigate with vigor. Whoever those remains are, they deserve justice. And more importantly, they deserve to be known. In light of all of this, I have a very strong feeling that this is not going to be an easy task to accomplish, but we will endeavor to persevere and whatever we can uncover, rest assured, you, our faithful listeners, will be the first to know. To know. Bob Mata, and this is episode 25. Psychic, psychic. We left off on January 10th, 1979, with Gacy making his first appearance in 26 and Cal. The first order of business was that Judge Fitzgerald informed the creep that the state had indicted him for the murder of six more young men, bringing the total to seven, including Rob Peast. The state had not given the defense any kind of heads up that they had secured six more indictments. But let's be real about this. Nobody should have been surprised. But considering that no discovery has been tendered from the state at this point, the defense is really operating in the dark in terms of what exists as far as evidence is concerned. Remember, at this point, the defense has not received any reports concerning Gacy's statements. So other than the two statements that Amaranti was present for, his defense counsel doesn't really know what Gacy has told them. Now, common sense would dictate that they have access to their client just to ask him. But you've been hearing the tapes of my father interviewing his client. The guy is slippery. He talks out of both sides of his mouth. He claims that he doesn't recall not only what he said in those statements, but he has gone so far as to say that he doesn't really recall any of the killings, except for the five that he articulated to Albrecht. What this means from the defense side of things is that they can only do one thing at this point in time. Wait. In the meantime, the defense has begun filing motions. Lots of them. However, the motions discussed in the last episodes and the ones that we will discuss in this episode are not fact-heavy motions. They can't be because, well, at this point, they don't have any facts. They're primarily getting their information from the press because, rest assured, the state and the cops have zero interest, incentive, or desire to assist in providing any information to the defense until they are required to do so by the court. Gamesmanship is a huge part of trial work. The state always has and always will have the advantage in criminal cases. They have unlimited financial resources, They have law enforcement agencies and all the evidence gathered at their disposal right out of the gate. The defense, well, they have their client and that's about it. At the beginning of any criminal case, they can't begin their own investigation until they start receiving discovery from the state, namely the police reports. So right from the start, all criminal defendants started a huge disadvantage in terms of trying to form a defense. 
the state is building their case long before the defense can sink their teeth in, which is exactly what Bill Kunkel is doing. He's applying pressure on Desplaines PD to find Rob Peast. He's squeezing Dr. Stein to identify the victims so that he can start piling on the murder indictments. He's got the Cook County Sheriff's investigators out talking to every potential witness that has been identified so that he can start building his witness list. And the one advantage that the defense does have early on, which is holding back on their theory of the defense, has been exposed by Amaranti right at the onset. Kunkel knows that they are going with the insanity defense, so he can tailor his prosecution of the case with this knowledge already in hand. As I say, I even I, I was discussing that with uh, the first assistant state's attorney at a point in time when I hadn't even looked at uh, anything in the, the statements or anything else yet, and uh, there was no doubt in my mind that was the only defense to the case. Uh, he's he's got, got him in his basement. It's simple as that. End of story. Yeah, there's no other, there's no other, plus he's given uh, inculpatory statements. He's, he's confessed. He didn't, of course, he always said, well, they weren't confessions because I didn't sign them or they weren't taped or whatever. Well, we, you and I both know they're, yeah, they are confessions. And uh, so uh, he was faking multiple personality, even his own, even his own psychiatrists uh, said those efforts were sham. Now, relating to the discovery, remember that a majority of discovery in a criminal case consists of the police reports. Now, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Police reports are generated by reporting officers after the fact, meaning that they are not created contemporaneous to the investigation. No, if they are out talking to a witness, they take notes of what they did and what they learned, and at some point in time, days, weeks, months later, they sit down at a typewriter and reduce it in writing in the form of a police report. It's important for you as true crime fans to know that every single cop that ever drafts a report has been trained and taught how to do so. They are made to understand that it is these very police reports that both the state and the defense will rely on entirely in building their case. Every single word of these reports will be looked at under a microscope by both sides both the defense and the prosecution is looking for inaccuracies and inconsistencies because the devil is in the details. Keep in mind that nothing was recorded in the Gacy case. Not Gacy's statements, not witness statements, nothing. In the thousands of documents that I've reviewed, specifically the police investigation file, there were only maybe eight handwritten witness statements and only one of those mattered. And that was the handwritten statement by Kim Byers, which she drafted the third time that she was interviewed. And you all know what we believe happened there. The point of me telling you this is that the cops, well, they have a lot of wiggle room when it comes to them writing their reports. Because nothing exists, such as recordings or handwritten witness statements, to refute what they are saying. Like Albrecht's reports on what Gacy allegedly said in all of those statements, that's all from his memory and his notes. God only knows what was missed or misstated. Now, as the reports start getting generated by the various officers, they pull it out of the typewriter and it lands on their superior officer's desk, which in this case was Kozenzak. 
He then reviews it. If it's to his liking, he signs off on it. So every report bears the signature of the reporting officer and Kozenzak. The reports are gathered over time as they are prepared and they are eventually put together in a discovery package, which eventually will be sent to the state's attorney's office. Remember, these often come in a piecemeal fashion as the police investigation continues post-arrest, meaning all discovery is not received all at one time. Keep in mind, in the Gacy case, that the Cook County Sheriff's Police was preparing their own reports, which were also bundled together and sent not to the state's attorney's office, but instead were sent to the Displains PD. It was this incredibly important fact that allowed Kozenzak to pull Humbert's inventory report of December 13th out of the discovery package that would be sent to the state. Are you referring to are you referring to my entire report or just the inventory sheet um, on that report? Because again, my report would have a basic report, an inventory sheet, a photo listing sheet, a state lab submittal sheet. I mean, all those things, that would be my report would be, you know, four or five pages long. And so did he ever, we, we had, sus, we will usually refer to a suspect blood or possible blood stain because we don't like to call those things because we're not, we haven't analyzed it. You know, that goes to the state lab, the serologists. So I should have, I mean, my inventory sheet should have included um, anything that I, that I physically removed from that, that situation, that scene, would be on my inventory sheet. And I, I, again, obviously, the, the rope, which we felt was important, um, because we're looking for hair fibers and things like that in it. Um, the, the wallet case, which I looked at for a day, um, just to see if I could raise numbers, look at numbers, just under magnification and could not. So, but sometimes the lab has, has better tech, obviously had better technology even then, but also the, the bloodstain stuff would have gone in for serology. So that should have all been listed uh, numerically on my inventory sheet. And then there should have been an accompanying uh, state lab sheet asking for uh, suspect, uh, you know, for hair fibers, suspect bloodstains, so on and so forth. So I should have had a very detailed um, uh, state lab submittal sheet uh, as, as well as my, my basic report and my photo listing sheet. So once the discovery is sent to the state, they then go through it. Now, you better believe that the state is scouring these reports looking for weak links. And the fact of the matter is that they are obligated to turn over everything that they have in their possession that they intend on using at trial. But the reality is, is that the defense can't miss what they don't know exists, like Humbert's report. Because by the time that the discovery was sent from the Displains PD to the state, Kozenzak had created his own property evidence sheet, which of course included the photo receipt that was missing from Humbert's report because it wasn't there which effectively filled what otherwise would have been a gaping hole in the chain of custody. Again, you can't miss what you don't know exists. So the bottom line is that the defense can't start drafting substantive motions like motions to suppress evidence, motions to quash warrants, motions to suppress statements until such time that they have received whatever it is that they will end up receiving from the state. So the motions that are being filed on the 10th are motions that don't require factual evidence from the investigation. 
Speaking of which, let's check back in on Kozenzak and his search for Rob Peast. While they now have Rob's jacket in evidence, Kozenzak only cares about one thing, and that's finding Rob. At this point, the case against the creep has grown horrifically. So why does Kozenzak remain so obsessed with finding Rob? One would think that he would be satisfied, considering it appears that he has stopped one of the most destructive, terrifying men that the world has ever known from claiming any more innocent lives. Yet, he's not. This fact alone crystallizes what drove him to do what he did in order to get Gacy off the streets. So it is this zealousness that pushes him to the point of desperation. Feeling as if he has exhausted all conventional avenues, he finally resorts to the unconventional. He seeks the assistance of a psychic to help him find what corner of the world Rob's remains rest. When we originally interviewed Rafael Tovar, he told us this incredible story, which at first blush had me dumbfounded. Let him tell you what he told us and see what you think. I'll meet you on the other side of it to discuss it a bit more. If you got time, I'll tell you a real cool story. The Peace family were getting desperate that their son had not been found, the body. So they brought in Allison, I can't remember what her last name is, from Nutley, New Jersey. Have you ever heard of her? She was a psychic. Here's a story about Allison. I can't remember her last name. But they brought her in, and uh, they asked us to come in and sit with them. Well, why not? You know, I sort of believe in anything's possible. You know, so... They bring her one of Robbie's jackets, and immediately she started itching. And, well, what had happened, Gacy had put the body up in the attic where there was a lot of fiberglass. And then she says, she'd never been here before in Illinois. And she said, uh, first of all, your son is dead. He says, he's in the water, and he's dead, you know. So please don't, you know, take offense or anything to this. So he said... Uh, there's a, he was taken on this road that has the same number, you know. And uh, right near where there's some big structures with number 4242, that's where he went into the water. Well, we started thinking about it. Okay, fine. Then she said, he, in order to get to this place where he's at, he says, you have to get off this main road and go on this road that has uh, a... Uh, how shall I say, a military connection. And he says, and off to the right along the river, there's a place of great pain. Many people died there. And she goes, and we're like, wow, what's this all about? And then she says, there's a building up overlooking this place. It's a white building. And some judge suffered there, and he killed himself. And then says, and if you go down, you go down to this dirt road, make a left turn back onto the main uh, a highway, she says. And he says, I, I get this very vague vision of a bank. She says, I don't know why it's vague, but it's very ba vague. She says, if you turn to the left, you'll go through this steel bridge, a steel tunnel. So you'll come out, and there's, again, vague images of 
a barber shop and a, and a lumber yard. So you go to the end of the road, and that's where he's at in the water. And he says, oh, and on the left, there's a store. It's called Ralph's. Ralph's Grocery Store. He says, and Ralph has a beard, a big bushy beard. And he says, this doesn't make sense. He says, but I see a sign that says lemon, not lemonade, but lemon something or other. And he says, okay, fine. And, then she says, and that's what you'll find. So she goes away. We had notes. Bill Ward was a state's attorney with Terry Sullivan at the time. And I said, you know what? Let's check this out. Just, I mean, why not? We started thinking, well, the road could only be 55, I-55. And we knew where he had gone to dump bodies. So, and, of course, we go down I-55. Right at the bridge, there's a mobile refinery, those big tanks. The first tank you could see was 4242. So we went a little bit past, past the river on the right. The first road you come on is Arsenal Road. So we go down Arsenal Road, a little town called Shanahan. So we stopped at the police station, you know, just asked the guy, I said, you got anybody here that's a history buff about this area? I said, oh, you're in luck. He says, Joe, somebody or other, he, he's our jailer. He, he's been here forever. He knows everything. I said, okay. I says, as you come off Arsenal Road, is there anything unique about that area there? He says, yeah, that was a prisoner of war camp for the, for the Civil War. He says, they had uh, Southerners there, he says. He says, oh, it was a tragedy. He says, they made them build their own shacks with flat stone rocks. He said, a lot of them died of exposure there. So great sorrow, great death. And he says, is there a house to overlook? He says, oh, yeah, judge somebody's house. I said, what happened to him? He said, he committed suicide. I said, why, why was that? I can't remember if it was like he sentenced somebody to death and the guy was innocent or something with a decision he had made. So we, we go continue forward. He hit the dirt road hits the blacktop. We make a left turn, and we get to where, you know, look in the notes, vague, vague image of a bank. There's a sign there, future home of the Shanahan State Bank. We go left, and you see this tunnel. What it is, the train goes over it, and all the trussels, is that what you call it, were all metal instead of wood, so it looked like a steel tunnel. Come out on the other side. Oh, you guys heard the best of it. There's a, uh, a old barbershop. The pole is still up. On the right-hand side is a closed-down lumber yard. We go to the very, it's about two or three more blocks at the end, and there's a river. And there's a big, big, big tree there with roots going every which way. And then to the left, right on the water's edge is Ralph's Grocery Store. We walk in, and I says, is the owner here? The guy comes out, he's clean-shaven. I says, damn, I says, she's wrong about one thing. And I says, are you the owner? He says, well, I'm the second owner. My dad used to own it. I says, I says he, was he clean shaven? He says, no, he had the biggest, fullest beard. And there was two signs, lemonade and, some, and something else. And the way they fell, it spelled that word, lemon crush or something. Like that. So what we surmise is that when he dumped the body and floated out, it got tangled up and caught in that big tree there. And then when the ice came about and kept it there when it melted he probably turned loose and that's when they found it what a weird thing. i mean i yes. she made a believer about allison dorothy allison so yes dorothy allison yeah that's her name now the way that tovar tells it you come out of that saying holy shit maybe there is something to this whole psychic thing so naturally we wanted to dig in a bit more to verify some of what he claims happened with the psychic because after all Tovar 
is a seasoned storyteller. As it turns out, Tovar's story was a bit of an amalgamation of what actually occurred with respect to the use of psychics in the Gacy case. Apparently, Mrs. Peast had grown weary of waiting for Rob to be found, and she encouraged Kozenzak to look into consulting a psychic. Now, Kozenzak understood that the use of psychics by law enforcement was, to say the least, frowned upon by a vast majority of people involved with law enforcement. So he was going to tread very carefully with respect to consulting one. He knew that if Desplaines PD was using a psychic to try to solve cases, that the department would lose credibility and be ridiculed by the rest of the law enforcement community. There are no reports that exist in the file with respect to the not one, but two psychics that Kozenzak ended up consulting during the Gacy investigation. Now, the following information comes from Kozenzak's book, The Chicago Killer, which contains the only written confirmation that these events occurred that we were able to locate. So, keeping in mind that Kozenzak was prone to fictionalizing certain aspects of the case, let's see what he claims occurred. Kozenzak met with a woman named Carol Broman on December 17, 1978. She was a local psychic who had agreed to try and assist without receiving any compensation. And she also agreed, which was incredibly important to Kozenzak, that she would not speak with the press or anybody for that matter about her involvement. She requested that when they met with her, that they bring her one or two items that had been significant to Rob. Mrs. Peast had brought Rob's radio and camera and had given them to Kozenzak prior to the meeting. Kozenzak handed over the items to Broman. She claimed that she was getting more from the camera than she was from the radio and started speaking in kind of partial sentences. The first thing she stated was that the boy was not alive. She did not want to go through the details of how he was murdered, but stated that it was gruesome. She then told them that they would find six or seven more boys in the same area that they find Rob. Now remember, this is December 17th. So she seemed to make reference to Elmer Wayne Henley down in Texas who was a gay man who had kept the boys and until one of them escaped and dug all the bodies up. Now, if it is true that she did in fact state this considering this meeting occurred before Gacy was arrested and before they knew about the graveyard and his crawl space, that would be a pretty impressive insight. Kozenzak also had her work with a map because remember, his number one goal is to locate Rob. She has claimed to have told Kozenzak that the man associated with these murders was involved with construction, as she was seeing a large construction site in her visions. She further told them that they were dealing with a very sick man, and that not all of the boys are from Desplaines. She went on to say that the man was a masochist and that he enjoyed inflicting pain, and that the last boy had been tricked, and that it had all been planned. All of it had been planned out. Broman said that she was getting signs from the other youngsters and that this may be going back at least five years. And she also mentioned that there was a close acquaintance of the man who knew a great deal and may have witnessed some of the things. After Gacy was arrested on the 21st, Kozenzak was now all in on the psychic thing, as it appeared that Broman was pretty damn accurate with a lot of the things that she had stated. So he decided to consult another psychic out of New Jersey, who was a very well-known woman named Dorothy Allison. She was in the middle of trying to help law enforcement down in Atlanta 
with a series of child murders that were occurring. So she told Coles and Zach that she would come in the spring. She ended up showing up in early March. Now, I know that I'm jumping ahead and back time-wise in the narrative, but let's consider this some bonus material, an interesting aside, if you will. So she meets with Coes and Zach and Mrs. Peast, and over the course of the next week, Coes and Zach claims that they drove over a thousand miles searching for Rob's body. Allison wanted to start at the creep's house, which was basically at that point a pile of rubble. Upon arrival, she told Coles and Zach that they would find Rob's body where there was a strong smell of oil. They primarily drove down around Grundy County, Illinois, along the Desplaines River. After a week of tireless searching, they came up empty. Allison had to return home, and upon leaving, Kozenzak claims that she told him that the body will be discovered near a place called the Manor Motel, and to search for the body on April 9th, 1979. Kozenzak claims he wrote both of these tidbits down on a notepad on his desk. On Casey's birthday, on March 17th, Kozenzak went back to Carol Broman, but this time he brought Rob's jacket with him. Broman claims that she was sensing a trip on a cold, snowy night, and that the boy's body was dead on the floor of the back seat while Gacy drove. She described a large, red brick building that was boarded up, and she sensed rolls of copper wire, and that the property where the body would be found had a large tower that would be behind you. These descriptions reminded Kozenzak of an area down around Morris, Illinois, where they had been when they were driving with Dorothy Allison. But that's all she could give him. Kozenzak relentlessly attempted to follow up on the psychic tips, so much so that the other cops in the department became aware of the involvement of the psychics. No boy did the whispers start. This did not deter him, as he would end up spending nearly every day driving around Illinois, alone, searching for Rob's body, desperately searching for all the clues that the two psychics had given him. Will Kozenzak achieve his goal and find Rob? Not in this episode, he won't. Let's head back to reality and rejoin the proceedings taking place at 26 and Cal on January 10th. So Amaranti had already filed a battery of motions and is now seeking the court's assistance on getting their hands on the warrants from the 13th and the 21st and their accompanying complaints. Again, as will always be the case, all information related to you is directly from the transcripts. And I'm going to read this entire little interaction between Amaranti and Kunkel a little later because it demonstrates the level of animus that is building between the two sides. Amaranti starts off with saying, we have not yet judged seen. When I say we, I am referring to Mr. Mata, myself, and Mr. Gacy. We have not seen copies of the search warrants. We haven't seen the complaints or the affidavits for the search warrants. It's my understanding that pursuant to Chapter 38, Section 108-3, a copy of a search warrant, if not tendered or given to the defendant or his attorneys, must be left on the premises. Amaranti continues on. Judge... I have not seen a copy of that search warrant at the premises on each and every time I've been there. I would be asking, I think more than reasonable time has gone by since the issuance of the first warrant. 
I believe it's my understanding that the search warrant was issued on December 13, 1978. And it's also my understanding that another search warrant was issued on December 21, 1978. And I have not seen either of those search warrants. I think that a more than reasonable amount of time has been allotted for the return of said search warrants to the court files. I would be asking for production and preservation of those warrants, Judge. And because of the nature of the case, Judge, and the nature of the excavation involved, we would also at this time be asking the court to order production of any complaints accompanying complaints or affidavits to the search warrant. Now, Bill Kunkel responds, Judge, my understanding is that the court has in the court file at least one of the search warrants that was already returned. I believe some of the others, a plea to extend the date for a return was granted by Judge White, and that's the reason they're not a part of the court file yet. The ongoing and special nature of this particular investigation, that's why the return time on those warrants was extended by the judge in the third district. The court, after hearing on both sides of the issue, weighs in. Judge Fitzgerald then says that he presumes that a copy will be tendered to the defense sometime during the course of the motion for discovery. Not a lot of help there. Amaranti says, thank you, Judge. But it's also my understanding that under the sections applicable to the search warrants, that the state shall return to the court at the earliest possible convenience, if the court please, an inventory of items seized and an inventory of the search itself. To date, Judge, we have received no copies regarding any personal property of the defendant, period. We'd be asking the court to order the state or the police to tender that to the court in Stanter regarding any personal property of the defendant, period. Kunkel responds, that's what's been extended, Judge. That's what I was just trying to point out. There is a lot of individual items involved here and some extensive inventory. And when it's prepared, it will be filed with the court. So the court accepts this response from the state. Amaranti, however, does not. Your Honor, I believe the court indicated earlier that Judge White extended the time of the return date on the second warrant. I believe the statute calls for a 96-hour return or execution, at least on the warrants. Perhaps counsel or the court knows when that return date would be? The return date that Amaranti keeps referring to means a date by which the state must submit a report that shows when the warrant was effectuated and what property they seized during the search. Now, Kunkel takes the lead here and he answers. Now, keep in mind that even though the two sides are arguing with each other, every word that is uttered by an attorney in court is directed at the judge, not at the opposing counsel. The purpose of that being to keep the lawyers at arm's length from each other so that it does not degenerate into a screaming match between the two attorneys. Now, Kunkel says, Judge White did not set it to my knowledge, Judge, a specific date for the return of inventory. Amaranti replies that we feel that the time allotted this particular juncture is an unreasonable amount of time. The warrants should have been returned to the court by now. The court indicates that a warrant was effectuated on December 13th, 1978 at 3 o'clock p.m. And it puts it on the state to show that that extension of the warrant has actually been issued. Amaranti argues that as far as the defense knows, that only one search warrant was issued. Amaranti then states the basis of the motion to the court. Judge, our motion states 
that on or about the 21st of December 1978, I believe in the late hours of that day, a search was commenced, presumably without our knowledge, under the auspices of a search warrant. That search, as we stand here in court, it is my understanding, is still going on. Now, I don't know, Your Honor, that additional search warrants have been ordered by the court. I haven't seen the search warrant. It would be our position, Judge, that the search that is going on right now, the search, the excavation, the destruction of the defendant's property, can do no more and serve to do just that, destroy the defendant's property. It is a search without probable cause. It's merely a fishing expedition. When in the world will it end? It could be all the defendant's properties, unless the state unless the law enforcement officials involved, unless the medical examiner can show this court probable cause, I believe this court should order an immediate stop, cease and desist order as against law enforcement officials and all related personnel involved in the search. Unless the state is prepared to come forward with evidence showing probable cause for further search, I feel that the search at this point is already gone beyond the bounds of the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Now, Amaranti is right about the time limitations on how long a warrant remains valid. Typically, you can't get a judge to issue a warrant and then hold off on the search for as long as you see fit. But this is not your typical case. And Kunkel, well, he fires back. He says, Judge, if I may suggest briefly, that the search will stop when those people conducting the investigation are certain within human and scientific certainty that there isn't a 28th body underneath that house and on that lot. And that's when the search will stop, Judge. I will ask this court to set this down for argument. I will be happy to prepare a brief in response, Your Honor. So Amaranti is finally getting fired up about the warrants, the searches, and the destruction of the creep's house. He also wants to see what in the hell they found during the searches. Now, Amaranti didn't know then what we know now, which is that the inventory of the property seized during the searches is being meticulously prepared by Kozenzak back at the Displains police station during the rare occasions when he's not out searching for Rob. But as you can tell, right from the jump, Bill Kunkel will not be backing down under any circumstances. The gloves are off as preparations for the trial of the century are officially underway. The hearing on January 10th is not done, but we are. So make sure to join us on the next episode of Defense Diaries. First and foremost, to the man in the middle, the man who makes all the magic happen behind the scenes, Darren Wood. You are my homie. You are my man. I love you. I love everything that you do for us. You're putting together an amazing show. To Taras Horoluski and Ryan Gack, you guys, that masterful music that you guys produce and allow us to put on the show is just amazing. Thank you so much. The listeners love it. We love it. You're the best. Uh, in terms of our original art, both Alex Carver and Corey Ridings, thank you guys for everything that you do. I love every image that you've ever provided for us, and it's all going to be on merch soon, we promise. And to my wife, Allison, for everything that you do behind the scenes, for all the support that you give us, which is constant. You're amazing. We love you. Thank you. 
and to our patrons we cannot tell you how much we adore you let me just tell you when we get an email like that little ding that says you got something in your inbox and we see that we got a new patron darren and i both have a giant parade inside of our minds and to you our everyday listeners you guys know it i know it everybody knows it without you i'd just be some old man talking about an old case talk to you next time